Hey, it's so good to welcome you to Fields Church Online, and we are so pleased that you've tuned in for this message. No matter what's going on in your world right now, we pray that you come away feeling encouraged by this message. Thanks, Beth. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, always lovely to see you, always a privilege to be here. Um, After two amazing weeks of Vision Sunday, we're going back to this series on the heroes of faith. Can you remember? Can you transport your mind back uh, a few weeks? It all started from this passage in Hebrews 11 that Pastor Richard opened with. And the author writes about all of these amazing people throughout the Bible who are known as the heroes of our faith. Some of them have have done some really interesting things, some really fascinating things, but they're all described as heroes of our faith. And as I was looking through this list in Hebrews 11, it really strongly occurred to me that so many of these people are people that I heard about in Sunday school. They're Sunday school stories. I don't know how many of you went to Sunday school um, as a kid. I don't mean to brag, but I went to a Sunday school that had um, a three-tiered point system. So if you turned up, you got one point. If you brought your Bible, you got a second point. And if you brought a friend, you got three points. So it was quite an exciting time to be alive, really. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the end of the year, what the Sunday school teachers would do is give you a bag of sweets. And the bag of sweets was either smaller or larger, depending on how many points you had. Um, so something to look forward to once a year. Um, And these are all the stories of these people in Hebrews 11. Um, They're all the people that I heard about in every Sunday school I went to. I went went to the Sunday school with the triple-tier point system. Also went to another Sunday school very briefly. They didn't have a point system at all. Um, They started with a time of holy hugs, where they made the children and young people like hug each other at the start. So as an introvert, if you find minute mingle painful, um, welcome to Sunday school holy hugs for two minutes. But every Sunday school I went to, I heard these stories, and especially the story of Samson that we're looking at this morning. Now, that's a good thing, I think, hearing about all these stories at Sunday school, because as a kid, it gives you a really good foundational knowledge of some of these amazing people that are heroes of our faith. But there's also a downside for those of us who went to Sunday school, and that's that sometimes, whether intentionally or or unintentionally, we take these amazing heroes of faith And we kind of leave them in our childhood, maybe alongside like the tooth fairy. And we kind of leave them behind and we think, yeah, these are great stories for kids, but do they really have anything to say to us as reasonably mature adults? I think they do. I think they do. And this morning, we're getting to grips with this story of Samson. It's a story that I thought I had left behind in my childhood. I thought I had left him behind. Because at Sunday school, I was told he was a strong man, he had long hair. Do some of you recall this story? He was strong, he had really long hair, and as long as he had long hair, he would be really strong. Um, So he basically spent his life like going around, like opening jars and doing like cool, strong, manly stuff. There was a story where he encountered a lion and he killed the lion with his bare hands. And then this really confusing bit where There was a swarm of bees that went into the line and made some honey. And then the Sunday school teacher would typically have brought in a jar of Lyle's golden syrup, which had the picture of the lion on, with this little riddle, out of the strong came forth sweetness from the story of Samson. And the Sunday school teacher would kind of thrust this jar of golden syrup in your face and say, see, the Bible is true, the Bible is still relevant. 
And as a seven-year-old, I'm thinking, gosh, if it is on a tin of branded syrup, then it must be true. Um, Samson then carried on. He met his girlfriend, Delilah. Delilah was always the evil one, wasn't she? Horrible Delilah, because she organized for Samson to have his hair chopped off. I mean, heaven forbid a biblical hero should be responsible for his own personal grooming. Um, So Delilah was always the evil one. And then Samson died, but we didn't really talk about that. So that's where I thought I had left Samson behind. And then I rediscovered his story um, probably about 10 years ago now. As an adult, the story of Samson appears very different. One particular commentator describes Samson as a sex-crazed mass murderer and one of the worst leaders of God's people. So, you know, there's that. And as I tried to find the answer as to where I should put Samson on this scale of of kind of good to disaster, I realized that it's probably one of the most interesting, fascinating, and complex stories in the entire Bible. This this is my own personal opinion. You can can disagree. I'd I'd be glad if you did. But I believe that the story of Samson is the most wild story in the entire Bible. It's a bold statement. And that's not just on like a Josh scale of wild, which is like, oh, there's a new series of location, location, location. I mean, like what a normal person would deem to be wild, I think, is the story of Samson. So it's a story that I've been kind of obsessed with for the past 10 years, and I've tried to kind of bring a few thoughts this morning. Should we dive in? The story of Samson is found in Judges chapter 13. If you've brought your Bible, you get your second point. The story of Samson appears, it starts in Judges chapter 13 and ends in Judges chapter 16. So literally in these four chapters of the Bible, Samson does all of these weird and wonderful things. But the context that he's been born into and the story of the book of Judges is that the people of Israel are falling away from God, they're sinning, and a leader is raised up each time to try and bring the people back to God. And there's 12 leaders in total, of which Samson is the final one. I know it's really difficult, but try and, try and use your imagination this morning. Imagine a nation that's in a crisis and kind of leader after leader <laughs> keeps trying to solve the problem, but actually each successive leader just makes it worse. Are you, are you vaguely able to imagine that scenario? This is where Samson is born. Judges chapter 13 from verse 1. Again, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who kept them in subjection for 40 years. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant and they had no children. An angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you've been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, if you're reading this story in the kind of Old Testament context, you're going to find this story amazing in and of itself. But as Christians reading this story, I hope you're getting what I call the theological tingles, which is, haven't we heard this story before? Or haven't we heard this story sometime in the future? This is a woman who's not in a position to have a child, visited by an angel, being told she's going to give birth to a son. And we read a few verses later, the son will be special He will be dedicated to God from birth, and he will rescue Israel 
from the Philistines. The child is special. He's going to free and save God's people. We have heard this story before. This is the story of the birth of Jesus, but many, many years before. Unfortunately, this is where the parallels with the life of Jesus end for now. Let's have a look at the middle of Samson's life. I spent 10 years obsessing over this story, and this is my simplest way of trying to condense all of the weird things that Samson does. His life is basically defined by two negative cycles. In the first half of his life, he has this cycle where he's betrayed, he takes revenge, and then he retreats, and he goes through that cycle three times. The second half of his life, we're gonna come to in a little bit. Let's have a look at this first cycle. Now, I told you earlier um, in my vague Sunday school recollections of this story that Samson encountered a lion. He encountered a lion on the way to meet his future wife, his, um, the, the Philistine woman that he wants to marry. He kills the lion, the bees kind of move in, make some honey, and he has this little riddle out of it. And this riddle he decides to tell at his wedding reception. They hold this seven-day wedding feast, Samson and his wife, and Samson decides to tell this riddle as kind of entertainment. I'm guessing there was limited other options. <laughs> this riddle we can see um, in chapter 14, verse 18. So before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer. Oh no, sorry, I picked the wrong one. Judges chapter 14, verse 14. So he said, from the one who eats came something to eat out of the strong came something sweet. So Samson poses this riddle, and of course, the way that good riddles work is you should be able to solve them, right? With enough time, you should be able to deduce them logically. But Samson was the only person who had this encounter with the lion. So it was impossible for these people to solve. Naturally, they get angry, and they convince his wife to kind of get the answer from him. So Samson is betrayed by his own wife at his wedding reception. So his next step after being betrayed is to get revenge. Let's look at where he gets revenge. This is in chapter 14, verse 19. Then the spirit of the Lord powerfully took control of him or filled him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings and gave their clothing to the men who had answered the riddle. Samson gets his revenge. He kills 30 people because they tricked his wife to give him the answer to the riddle. And then Samson moves into the third phase of this cycle. He retreats. It says he was furious about what happened, and he went back home to live with his father and his mother. We haven't got time to go into the other two cycles in great detail, but the second time around this cycle, Samson goes back to see his wife and realizes his father-in-law, thinking Samson had just deserted her, gives his wife to the best man at the wedding. So Samson is betrayed not only by his wife, but by his father-in-law. He gets his revenge by capturing 300 foxes. Again, you need, to, you need to kind of read this to believe that it's true. He captures 300 foxes. This is chapter 15, verse 4, if you're following along. Ties their tails together in pairs, fastens a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the fields, burning the harvest. The Philistines get their revenge by murdering his wife and his father-in-law. Samson gets more revenge 
by murdering more people. And then he goes into retreat, chapter 15, verse 8, by hiding in a cave. So this is all working out really well, isn't it? The third time around this cycle, Samson's betrayed by 3,000 people of Judah, people that should have been on his side. They approach him in the cave, give him up to the Philistines. Samson gets his revenge here in chapter 15, verse 14. The spirit of the Lord powerfully took control of Samson. He snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax. They fell from his wrists. He picked up a donkey's jawbone that was lying on the ground and killed a 1,000 people with it the third time round this negative cycle. So let's recap. He killed 30 men, then 300 foxes, caused untold economic damage by destroying the harvest. He hid in a cave. He had his wife and her father killed. He was betrayed by 3,000 people of Judah. He killed 1,000 men with a donkey's jawbone. And still, the Israelites are ruled by the Philistines. Has Samson achieved his vision of setting God's people free? I think we can clearly say no. Let's have a look at the second half of Samson's life. This is where he meets Delilah. We're in now chapter 16, verses 4 to 6. Later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. The leaders of the Philistines went to her and said, find out from Samson what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah's aim here is to get paid by the Philistines to find out this eternal secret of what makes Samson so strong. Now, he's obviously learned something from the first half of his life about being betrayed, because when Delilah asks him, he tries at least to kind of trick her and outsmart her and get one step ahead of the game. But what actually happens is this second cycle. Delilah sets this trap. Samson lies to try and get out of it. And then they both just get angry and frustrated with each other. And like the first half of his life, he goes through this cycle, a total of three. Use your strength. And Samson says, tie me up with seven new bowstrings that haven't been dried. So Delilah does that. Of course, Samson breaks free. And then she's upset. This is chapter 16, verse 10. Afterward, Delilah said to him, you made fun of me and told me a lie. Now, please Tell me how you can be tied up securely. The second time around this cycle, Samson says, tie me up with brand new ropes. Of course, that doesn't work. He breaks free and she's upset. The third time around this cycle, Samson says, if you tie my seven braids of hair together, then I will lose my strength. Of course, that doesn't work. He breaks free and Delilah is upset. Chapter 16, verse 15 is particularly Uh, telling chapter 16 verse 16 so day after day she nagged him until he couldn't stand it any longer there are some verses where you really need to go into the hebrew to work out what it means but i think we can get the atmosphere of their relationship from that one verse so this secret of samson's strength that he's been carrying his whole life he finally at this moment decides to tell delilah Now, in my opinion, this moment is both beautiful, but also tragic. Let me explain why. It's beautiful, in my opinion, because after so many years of anger and murder and betrayal, we finally see from Samson some truth and some vulnerability and some humility. 
This is chapter 16, verse 17. Finally, Samson told her his secret. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. It says after this that Samson fell asleep with his head in Delilah's lap. And there's this kind of beautiful, sensual moment where he finally, this kind of angry man whose life has been defined by these negative cycles of betrayal and anger and revenge and retreat, he finally seems at peace. But this moment is also very tragic, of course, because this is where Delilah organizes for his hair to be shaved Samson finally breaks his Nazarite vow that the angel gave his mother even before his birth. And it says that Samson's strength left him. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 16 that God left him. My thought after 10 years of studying this story is what grace God showed that despite everything in Samson's entire life, God really stuck with him right through until this moment. But it does kick into action, a series of events which lead to Samson's death. He's captured by the Philistines. He's unable to escape. He even has his eyes gouged out. I mean, I didn't get told that at Sunday school, but I think that would have, that would have interested me. And he's finally thrown in jail. Here we are at Samson's death. This part of his story is crucial and fascinating. We're going to start at verse 23. The Philistine leaders held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their God, Dagon. They said, our God has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can perform for us. So he was brought from the prison and made to stand at the center of the temple between the two pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hands against the two pillars. I want to rest against them. The temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine leaders were there, and there were about 3,000 on the roof who were watching Samson and making fun of him. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. O God, please strengthen me one more time so I may pay back the Philistines for the loss of my eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the center pillars of the temple, pushed against them with all his might, Let me die with the Philistines, he prayed. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine leaders and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. We started uh, the story of Samson looking at his really incredible birth story and how that almost screamed this resonance with the birth of Jesus. Despite Samson's very messy life in the middle, I wonder whether his story has any symmetry to it. I wonder whether the death of Samson also has some resonance with the death of Jesus. 
Well, let's have a look. Both are humiliated. Both are physically injured. Both are raised up on a platform between two pillars. Samson physically between two pillars. Jesus on a cross between two other crosses. Both bring down the temple. Samson brings down the temple very physically. Jesus, it says when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Even some of the language is very similar. Samson's final prayer of remember me is very similar to the the man on the cross next to Jesus. He says, remember me when I come into your kingdom. There's something There's something about the symmetry of Samson's life that both his birth and his death are very, very similar to the birth and the death of Jesus. For me, the saddest part of Samson's story, and the part that I think we can learn the most from, is that Samson never really understood that bit in the middle between his birth and his death. Even when Samson opened up to Delilah, this is chapter 16, verse 17. He tells her, my hair has never been cut, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Even that is not technically true, is it? Samson didn't realize his strength was not actually always his own. Throughout Samson's story, whenever we see these moments where he has this super strength, it's preceded by this phrase that the Spirit of God fell upon him, or the Spirit of God filled him. It wasn't directly as a result of his hair, which is what I was told at Sunday school. The hair length was important because that was part of his vow to God. That was part of him having a really great relationship with God. But the strength was something else. The strength was something that came from God's spirit. In other words, Samson put all the importance on the gift rather than the person who gave him the gift in the first place. Samson thought that his long hair gave him the strength, but actually the long hair gave him a relationship with God, and it was his relationship with God that gave him the strength. He never really got that bit in the middle of his life right. Some commentators have written this, that Samson was known for telling a riddle, but maybe to Samson his whole life was a riddle. He never really worked it out. All that potential, all that vision, Maybe he did technically save God's people by destroying the temple and the Philistines, but it was very, very messy. So how do we hold this story? On this scale of amazing, strong hero and great leader to sex-crazed mass murderer and one of the worst leaders of God's people, I'm sure if we did a poll, you would all score Samson at different points on this scale, but even after 10 years of being obsessed with this story, how do we hold it? It's a difficult story, isn't it? How do we hold it? Well, the only thing I can do is to go back to where the story started. In fact, to go back to where this entire series started, back to Hebrews 11. 
Let's have a look right at the end of Hebrews 11. What does the author have to say about all of these heroes, including this really difficult, quite dark, quite complex story of Samson? Verse 39 and 40. All of these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had far better things in mind for us that we would also benefit them. For they can't receive the prize at the end of the race until we finish the race. The author of Hebrews, after listing all these people, implied that however great they are, however messy their stories are, none of them received what God had promised because God had planned something better for them. And I wonder whether that plan was Jesus. Something better, someone perfect. Because if you were going to do Samson's story all over again and make it perfect, wouldn't you... Wouldn't you tell a story of someone who had the almost identical birth story of an angel visiting a woman, telling her she's going to have a special son? Wouldn't you have an almost identical death story of someone in between, physically in this position, in between two pillars, mirroring the story of the crucifixion? But wouldn't you, in telling this new story, make the middle bit perfect? Samson's life was defined by betrayal, revenge, retreat, traps, lies, and anger, which gets worse throughout his life. For the mathematicians amongst you, there's a pattern. He kills 30 men, then he kills 300 foxes, then he kills 3,000 people at his death. His anger literally multiplies by a factor of 10 throughout his life. But how did Jesus model it? How did Jesus live differently? This is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. If I had to choose two lessons from Samson's life, it would be this. Firstly, that our strength is never our own. Our strength is from God's spirit within us. And we shouldn't go through our life trying to use our own strength. It's exhausting. It's messy. And it leads to anger and frustration and lies. The second lesson I take from the life of Samson is thank goodness for Jesus. Jesus didn't model revenge, he modeled sacrifice. He didn't model lies, he modeled the truth, and it's that that sets us free. He didn't model anger, he modeled peace. This is a super complex story and a really tricky story. I've spent 10 years being obsessed with it and I still haven't figured it out, but as each year goes by, these are the lessons that I'm learning, that it's never about our strength, it's about God within us. And however messy and complicated the story of these biblical heroes, thank goodness for Jesus. Wow, what a, what a brilliant message. It's made me think about Samson's life a lot differently than I thought. So let's just close our eyes and just bow our heads for a moment if we can. That was a really excellent 
message, uh, Josh. Love the contrast. The way you pictured Samson's life and the life of Jesus. I just want to just to think as we've got our heads bowed and our eyes closed about our relationship to Jesus. Maybe Samson's identity was in his hair or his gifts or his strength. But truly his identity was, like Josh said, in in Jesus, in the strength of God. We can do nothing, none of us, without that strength. And none of us can do anything really on this earth without that. And I want to carry on reading what... uh, Josh read in Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same that Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. This is the creator of the universe. Look what it says in verse 7. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that love, genuine love, pure love, is demonstrated. And Jesus demonstrated his love for you and for me by becoming a slave, came in human form, and died a cruel death on a cross. That's what he did, friend, for you and me, whether you realize that or not. We think, how can God love me? I don't know whether God loves me. Well, he demonstrated his love for you, friend, by dying a cruel death naked on a cross. So I'm going to ask this question. What about you, friend? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Going to church is a good thing, but it doesn't make us a Christian. We can go to church all of our life and never be born again. Jesus said to a religious leader in John 3, you must be born again. What does that mean? It's about giving our life to Jesus, surrendering our lives to him. Friend, are you ready to surrender your life to him? I don't believe you're here by accident. You've come into church today. Maybe you're just a visitor. Maybe you're just coming off the street. Maybe you've been here a few times. And I believe you're not here by accident, friend. I believe God is knocking on the door of your heart. And the handle to that door is on the inside. And God wants us to open our hearts up to him so that he can come in and fellowship with us. So what about you, friend? Are you ready to open the door of your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to come in? My life has just been just like Samson's. It's a mess. But if you allow Jesus into your heart, 
can start to live a new life where that old life has passed and gone and lead a new life in Jesus. So friend, if you're here today and you'd like to open your heart up to Jesus and say, Lord, I need you in my life, just put your hand up. While every head is bowed, every eye closed, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. No one's looking around. But just say, I need Jesus. Put your hand up and say, I need Jesus. Are you brave enough to do that today? Or maybe you at one time served God and you gave up on God. You gave up on church. Maybe church hurt you. Maybe you're just disillusioned with church, but you're here today. And you're saying inside of yourself, I just want to give my life back to Jesus. I just want to surrender myself to him and, and draw back to him again. Is that you, my friend? If that's you, just put your hand up and Jesus will see it and say, I want to come back to God. And you know God's waiting, ready with a, a robe to clothe you with his righteousness and to put a ring on your finger. He wants to welcome you back. Is that you? Just raise your hand up and say, that's me. I want to just surrender my life to Jesus again. Okay, it looks like we're all right with God. If anybody needs prayer or you'd like to talk to one of the prayer ministry team afterwards, there'll be three or four people standing here with lanyards on. If you need prayer about anything, just please come forward and speak to one of these people and they'll pray with you before you go. I'm just going to close the service and we're going to have some tea, coffee, and we're going to fellowship. Father God, we thank you for these stories in the Bible. They tell us of men and women who in the canon of Scripture declare them as heroes of faith. And yet their lives were nothing like that in one sense. And yet they are in the canon of Scripture. And we can learn so many things from these people who made mistakes like we make mistakes. But even when we make mistakes, it doesn't mean to say that God doesn't love us anymore. He loves you, friend. I just want to tell you that today. God loves you. Say that. God loves me. Everybody just say that in your heart or out loud. Just say, God loves me. He loves you, friend, and died for you. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to spend a Sunday morning giving you the first part of our week, our worship, our time, our energy, our efforts, our gifts, our talents. We've come to give you worship, not because you desire it, but you deserve it, Lord. And Father, we thank you that we can fellowship after the service with one another and spend time with one another, talk to one another, pray with one another, encourage one another. And Father, I thank you that as we go right now, that your angels would encamp around about us. Keep us safe and free from harm until we can meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you as you go. Please stay for tea and coffee if you can. If you need prayer for anything, just come forward and people.